The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture comes from Daniel seven twenty four to 27 The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous one, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The kingdom, dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the Holy Ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. So Randy Newman, a songwriter, was asked to write the theme song for a TV show about a brilliant detective with a debilitating case of OCD. And so during the opening credits of Monk, you can hear these lines. I'm not going to sing them for you. I'm just going to recite them. It's a jungle out there. Disorder and confusion everywhere. It's a jungle out there. Violence and danger everywhere. People think I'm crazy because I worry all the time. If you paid attention, you'd be worried too. You better pay attention or this world you love so much might just kill you. I could be wrong now, but I don't think so because it's a jungle out there. It's a jungle out there. Two things happened this week that made me think about these lyrics. The first was studying our text for this morning's sermon, and the second was the election. Watching candidate after candidate, their commercials where they just brutally attack and savage their opponent. They, They seem happy to climb to their new office over the mutilated reputations of those who oppose them. And this is in a free society, right? It's much worse in other countries where rulers take their place over the actual dead bodies of their opponents. When it comes to power and influence, it's a jungle out there. As Newman sings, disorder, confusion, violence, and danger everywhere. And certainly this isn't limited to politics. Violence happens on street corners and in living rooms every day. People are oppressed and enslaved around the world. We live in a jungle where beasts roam freely. Why is our world this way? Why do people mutilate and destroy other people in order to gain power? Why do they devour those who oppose them? Why is it a jungle out there? And is there any hope? Can anything be done about it? So Newman's song, which so poetically captures our world, it offers no remedy for the jungle. Maybe, Maybe the remedy is a smart and trustworthy detective who can solve crimes. But every week there's a new episode. Right, so which means every week there's more violence and danger. The jungle is no more tame in the final season than it was in the first season. The danger of living in the jungle is that we can easily grow disillusioned by what we see and give up. Or we, we can look for solutions that don't work and then grow disillusioned and give up. And into, into this confusion and disorientation comes 
this glorious chapter of Scripture, Daniel 7. It's a passage that helps us see through the fog of frustration and confusion that easily settles on us. It's a passage that reorients how we view the world and how we understand what lies behind the evil of our day. It gives us hope and a path forward by pulling back the curtain and showing us that all is not lost, all is not hopeless. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need this passage because we are so easily captivated and discouraged by the moment. Now, before we move forward in our text, let's actually back up slightly. If you haven't been with us, we've been working our way chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel opens with the nation of Israel being enslaved, being defeated and enslaved by the rising superpower of the day, the nation of Babylon. One of the things the nation of Babylon did was to take the brightest young leaders and, and take them to Babylon as a way to try, to try to sort of reorient them to a new way of thinking, a Babylonian way. And so Daniel and his three friends, they, they, they show us what it's like to try to navigate life faithfully following the true God in the midst of a, a culture that Babylon, we see, starts to stand symbolically for all rebellion against God. Right, this, what's it mean to look like to live faithfully when you're in exile? This is what Daniel and his three friends show us. And because of God's faithfulness, what we saw in the first seven chapters is that as, as nations rise and crumble, God's servants are preserved. Now, chapter 7 opens actually by, by hitting the rewind button. If you remember in chapter 5, we saw the end of Babylon. King Belshazzar was ruling and reigning, and that very night it says this other kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, it actually it takes over and destroys his kingdom. And so this account in chapter 7 that we're going to read predates what we saw in chapters 5 and chapter 6. But more than that, it marks a turning point in the book of Daniel from history to prophecy, from biography to apocalypse. And so from this point forward, if you've been reading in, in the book of Daniel or in, you've been in your small group or you've been talking about it, you might have noticed here in chapter 7 that we leave what feels a little more familiar and we, we enter a world that feels more like fantasy or sci-fi. Right? If, if Daniel 1 through 6 is like reading a newspaper, Daniel 7 through 12 is like a comic book. It's very visual storytelling. Now next week we're going to spend some of our time talking about how do we interpret this type of literature in the Bible, this apocalyptic literature. That's going to help us as we, as we finish out the book of Daniel. But, but for now, for this morning, let me just simply say that you must understand that apocalyptic literature, Daniel 7 through 12, it's highly symbolic. It, it mixes familiar and unfamiliar in such a way that the, the overall impression is clear, but many of the details are shrouded in mystery. And you're going to see that a little bit in this chapter, but even more so in the chapters to come. So as we look at this chapter this morning, we're, we're, we're going to pull back the curtain. It pulls back the curtain for us and shows us why life in this world is so difficult. I want to divide this chapter. I think it works to divide it into two main sections. So the first section actually is verses 1 through 8 and verses 15 through 28. Think of the chapter like an Oreo. This is the sandwich cookie is chapter number, or is a section number one. And then there's this wonderful cream filling in the middle. We'll get to that a little later. So the, the heading I would put over this first section of Daniel is this, life in the jungle. Life in the jungle. So we're used to dreams in the book of Daniel, but normally they've come to kings. This time a dream comes to Daniel himself. Look at verse one with me. 
It says, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind and he was lying as, as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream and here's the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night I was watching and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Four huge beasts coming from the sea. Each beast, we'll soon learn, represents a kingdom. And so, because we've been working through the book of Daniel, this, this dream actually reminds us of a previous dream. Do you remember back in chapter 2 when King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of four kingdoms? They weren't beasts, they were actually part of the same statue. And so this, this dream is telling the, a very similar account. But this time the beasts arise from the sea. And, and the sea actually is pictured symbolically in Scripture as a place of chaos, uh, a place of rebellion, a place of death. And that helps us interpret what's happening here because we understand right from the get-go that these beasts are, are coming out of rebellion and chaos and destruction. So we, we can interpret them correctly. These beasts are evil Rebelling against God and his law. Well, it's actually pretty easy for us to identify the first and second beasts. The the first beast is clearly Babylon. We'll see that in a second. The second is Medo-Persia. If you remember Babylon, it starts as something that's majestic and fierce, but then it is humbled because of its pride, and Medo-Persia devours it. So look at verse 4. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings. So majestic and powerful and fast and terrifying. I continue watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, set on its feet like a man and given a human mind. And so we recognize some of the similarities to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4. Suddenly another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. So that is Medo-Persia, which destroyed Babylon. Now, the third beast we'll be introduced to in a minute in verse 6 is Greece, which, which is described as a beast that moves swiftly around the world, but then at the end, it's, it's got four heads. It's divided into four kingdoms, just like Greece was after Alexander's death. That beast is eventually overtaken by Rome, which, which is the most common interpretation of the fourth beast, though there's a lot more going on there, and we're going to get to that as we go deeper into this chapter. Look at verse 7 with me. After this, after the third beast arose, while I was watching the night vision, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it. Pause there. That's going to be a common refrain and that's key. It was different. It was unique. And it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, now here the horns are they are just sort of symbols of power that will be even more evident in chapter 8. So ten horns, while I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it, and suddenly in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. That is a scary dream, isn't it? Now through the years, what's very interesting that Christians have really struggled to identify exactly what this, for, this fourth and final kingdom is. In fact, if you read for the last 2,000 years, you'll see lots of possible identifications. So what's happened often is as Christians have witnessed rulers come to power, they, they've noticed some things that often happen. So a ruler comes to power and often has to use that power very tragically. 
Right, so he comes to power usually through bloodshed and chaos. Often rulers then, once they came to power, they would turn to their own family and slaughter their own family. And then they would take slaves and they would treat the slaves like property and they would wipe out often whole people groups in genocide. And, I mean, this is the story of the world. And so what would happen as Christians would see this, they would regularly say like, well, maybe that's that final kingdom. And so I'd ask you, why have there been so many interpretations of this final kingdom for so many years? And that's because of the highly symbolic nature of these dreams. Because here's what is so obvious about this final kingdom. You ready? It is really, really cruel and unjust. Right? You can't miss that. Did you hear the words? Right? Trampling, devouring, crushing. And so... How many times throughout history have there been really, really cruel and unjust rulers? And so it's common for Christians to go like, well, that seems a lot like what we read here. How how many times have a ruler come to power and persecuted those who follow God? How many times has a vicious king lived in splendor while their own people starved? And, And so we need to understand that These nations are real, but they're also symbolic. And particularly this final one is intended to be held up sort of as a symbol of human rebellion against God. I want want you to listen to what David Helm. If you don't own a commentary or a book on Daniel, he has a great little one. I'd recommend it to you. It's really good. He, He describes this kingdom. And listen to what he says. He says, in this kind of literature, these ungodly icons cross over barriers in time and space. And as they run through the centuries, they can be identified with various kingdoms that oppose God. They can stand for earthly kingdoms as human geopolitical institutions, but notice never in isolation from the spiritual forces and powers of Satan that lie beneath them and from whom they derive their power. Okay, so the big picture of this dream is that nations keep coming to power and they keep using their power to rebel against God and Um, persecute his people. Now, Daniel has a lot of questions about this dream. Like, if you woke up and you're like, I'm pretty sure God communicated to me in a dream like this, you'd probably be like, I have some questions. And so God sends this angelic messenger to him to offer some help, verses 15 and 16. And here's what I want you to get. When he asks him about this dream, the angel summarizes the point of it. So we need to get this. This is the point. Don't get lost in all the details. Study them, but don't get lost in them. Get the point. Here's the point. Let's let's look at verse 17. These huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Like, don't miss it. Like, that's... The point of what he's saying. Now, Daniel, he still has questions, especially about that final kingdom. And here's why he has questions. Verse 19 tells us, Daniel says, I want to know about that one because it's different from all the others. That's the second time we've heard that description. Verses 20 and 21, that kingdom has a leader who comes to power who seems to be especially vicious. Now, here's the interpretation he's given. Look at verse 23. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Again, listen to this, different from all the other kingdoms. The third time it's described that way. It will devour the whole earth, 
trample it down, and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king, different from the previous ones, will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. So this fourth kingdom, this final kingdom, has a king that says that comes to power that does not attempt to disguise his hatred for God's people. He targets them specifically, and he does all that he can to hurt, harm, destroy, and kill them. This is likely the leader here is likely the one the Apostle Paul calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. It seems that Daniel is saying that evil will culminate in a leader who is completely against Christ or anti-Christ. But the Apostle John warns us, listen, that this type of evil is not confined to one man. Here's what the The Apostle John writes, he says, that there is an Antichrist coming, but he says, don't be deceived, there will be lots of rulers who are Antichrist, who are against Christ. Here's what we're seeing in Daniel, and here's what John is reiterating to us, is that this history is cyclical. This final kingdom is unique because it's picturing kingdoms. Rulers who are like this. And it culminates in sort of a a final rebellion, a great evil, but yet it's constantly happening, which is why Christians throughout the ages have looked at this and said, it seems like what we're seeing here is very similar to that. Crushing, trampling, destroying, hurting. They're against Christ. As we think about how Daniel describes life in the jungle, I want to give you three principles, okay? Here's the first one. Rebellion turns men into beasts. Rebellion turns men into beasts. So I want you to think back with me for a moment to the very opening chapters of Scripture, which describe how the world, the universe, everything was created by the Word of God. So God speaks and there's light. Then he takes this light. He forms it into sun, moon, and stars. then Then he shapes and fashions this world where he, where he places land and sea. And into this world, it says he, he puts... He puts fish and he puts birds and he puts beasts. And then for his final creative act, the masterpiece, he, he makes a man and a woman that are unique. And they're created, he says, to be his representatives, to be little kings and little queens exercising dominion over his world. They're to be creators and cultivators, building and beautifying and slowly filling his world with little princes and little princesses. This is how the psalmist describes God's does design for his world. Listen, he's, Psalm 8 says, When I observe your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God. Think about what he's saying. You you made him to be just a little less than God. Like, in other words, he goes on to say, You have crowned him with glory and honor. Like, you have put on his head a glorious and honorable crown under God. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea that passes through the currents of the seas. I mean, this is what God intended. 
And then one day into this world, a serpent slithers. And the man and woman, as God's representatives, as ruler of the beast, should have exercises that exercise their authority over that beast, but instead they listened to him. And in listening to the beasts, they become like beasts themselves. In fact, what is the curse that is placed upon man and woman? That you're going to leave this cultivated garden and you're going to go work out like a mule. The sweat of your brow digging furrows in the hard and rocky soil. And the further we get from obedience to God, the more beastly we become. We see the beastliness of rebellion actually personified in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this in chapter 4? It says that Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, was his heart was lifted up and he was exalting himself and what he does. And in that moment, God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's true, sort of, sort of his true sense, his true nature. He becomes like a beast. In other words, his beastliness, his beastly heart is revealed. And for a period of time, he actually lives like the beast he is. And it isn't until he humbles himself under God's rule that he is turned into a man again. And, and this is set in contrast with Daniel, who lives in humble obedience to God, and because he does, he is placed into a pit filled with beasts, and what does he do? He exercises dominion over the lions, and instead of tearing him to pieces, they, they humbly if, submit to his leadership. So, so what we see here is that God created humanity distinct from the beasts, in order to rule over the beasts as his representatives who look like him. But the sad reality is that humanity has strayed from our God-given purpose. We now use our power in beastly ways. I mean, that's what chapter 7 reveals, that human leaders have become vicious and unthinking. In fact, it says this, human leaders have become worse than beasts. Did you notice that these beasts are all mutated? They're all grotesque. They're a sad perversion of the beautiful design that God created. So many years ago, a couple of my brothers were going to run a summer camp. And so they decided that for the teams for summer camp, they were going to come up with something creative. So each, each team was named after a fictional creature that was a mashup of two animals. So these were the team names. They're pretty intimidating. The first team was the Bevelopes. Then the Turkodiles. The Sharkoons. And probably most fearsome of all, the Poostriches. You're trying to figure out what animals those are, aren't you? It's a poodle and an ostrich. And so they, they sort of drew this somewhat goofy sketch of each one. They put them on T-shirts because nothing like going into battle at summer camp with a poostrich on your shirt. Now, it, was, it was funny. There was nothing, the, sort of the point of it was there's nothing intimidating or fearful about these creatures. They were silly. It's sort of the opposite of what Daniel 7 does. There's nothing cute or lovable or honorable or glorious about these perverse, grotesque, mutated beasts in his dream. Notice each mutation actually adds to their viciousness. These beasts are not interested in cultivating creation, but in devouring flesh. They destroy instead of develop. They persecute instead of protect. 
The reason it's a jungle out there is because humanity has ignored the purpose for our existence. We have chosen a path of greed and consumption over generosity and compassion. And the further we get from God, the less human we become. Romans 1 traces a cycle of human rebellion and shows how it leads us away from what is natural. And it says we exchange that for what is unnatural, what is not human-like. Rebellion turns us into beasts who devour. Here's the second principle. Beastliness increases over time. Beastliness increases over time. So remember the initial charge given to Adam and Eve is, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. We're made to work in God's world and to watch over it as his representatives. And since we've been made in his image, our purpose is to create and to cultivate, to bring order and abundance to the land that is under our care. This is something uniquely human. Like beasts don't create. Animals don't design. In fact, the the more powerful an animal is, the more brutal they are. If you have a dog, I'm sure he's lovable. But I'm pretty certain that if you have a dog and a garden, one of two things happens. If you're lucky, your dog ignores your garden. If you're unlucky, your dog destroys your garden. Your dog doesn't help you garden. He has never pulled a weed intentionally. See, apart from the work of God's grace, beasts don't become more human. Now, it is possible when God intervenes like he did with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, but otherwise, beasts become more beastly. I mean, think about here we are. We're sitting in this room with air conditioning, with indoor plumbing. We have these devices in our pocket where we can talk to someone and see them in a matter of seconds from around the world. Like all of these technological advances. But is our world any more civilized today than it was a century ago? In fact, more technology is created. What we see is that more ways to hurt and destroy other people come with it. The progress of humanity is not toward compassion and care, but away from it. The beast devours. And so we need to be aware that the appetite for destruction and misery doesn't slacken before the end. See, one of the reasons this dream is so troubling to Daniel is because it doesn't resolve into something comfortable or easy. I'm sure it was tempting for Daniel to think that life was going to be better after Babylon. How could it be worse? Babylon came and defeated his country, took him as a slave and made him live there. It went back 20 years after it took him and it destroyed the temple of God. It tore down the walls of Jerusalem. Like Solomon's temple in all of its glory was just torn brick from brick by Babylon. And so it had to be tempting to think like, well, anything's got to be better in Babylon. And then what do we see in this dream? Does it get better after Babylon? No. Evil escalates in the final kingdom. Verse 23 says, This final kingdom devours the whole earth, tramples it down, and crushes it. So for all the good that Daniel did as as an influential advisor to these kings, and he did good, humanity continued to devolve into greater beastliness. Third principle. Beasts viciously attack sheep. Beasts viciously attack sheep. Who is most often targeted by human rulers? 
the people of God, his sheep, those who belong to him. Verse 21 says, the horn waged war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them. Verse 23 says, he will speak words against the most high and oppress the holy ones of the most high. This is a constant theme throughout scripture. Following God brings opposition. This world, because it is governed by those who reject God's law, will oppose and persecute those who obey it. I think it's easy for us to ignore how widespread the suffering of our brothers and sisters is around the world. I want to I actually read from Forbes magazine an article from earlier this year. So this isn't something old. This isn't some organization trying to raise money who's, who's saying like, oh, it's terrible. This is Forbes magazine this year. Quote, more than 360 million Christians suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination for their faith. It goes on to say, Christian minorities in Afghanistan have had to flee or go into hiding. Those whose names are known to the Taliban are being hunted down. If men are discovered to have a Christian faith, they are executed. If women are discovered, they may escape execution but face a life of slavery or imprisonment, unquote. 15, verse 15 tells us Daniel is deeply distressed and terrified. Verse 28 says his face turns pale. Christian suffering is real. And it's painful. And knowing God is sovereign doesn't make it easy. There's a real human cost. Does the suffering of your Christian and brothers and sisters around the world affect you? Are we too busy to care? Are you prepared yourself for suffering? Because as long as beasts rule, then sheep will be attacked. And so most of this chapter is showing us that life in the jungle is hard. We're waiting for that moment when it gets easier, but it just continues to get worse and worse. But it's not the whole story. And so there's this wonderful middle section of this chapter that shows us there is a Lord over the jungle. So this, this is, I want you to picture this almost like a, like a, a film, a movie, and you have sort of in the middle of the frame, really take up the whole frame, is this little horn, we're told, this ruler who's arrogant, and he's, and he's raging, and he's in his, in his anger against God, he's grotesque, but he's powerful. And then the camera sort of zooms out, and it slowly as it zooms out, lifts up and we see this little beast down here who's yelling and spittles flying and then there's this other scene that's taking place simultaneously far above him. And in this other scene there is one greater and more powerful than these beasts while all of these kingdoms have a beginning and end. The one who rules over the beast is older than time itself. His origin, it says, is before days were even numbered. His throne sits on a mountain of fire, yet it's not consumed. There's this perfect and blinding whiteness of his robe and his beards showing us that in no way has he ever been defiled. Around him is an army too large to be counted. And so this, this vision leaves us in no doubt about who's really in control. Look at verse 9. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. There is no panic, no fear, no chaos or uncertainty. While the horn continues to boast and rage, the Ancient of Days calmly takes his seat. And three things happen after he takes his seat. First, the beasts are judged by God. So as unruly as the beasts have been, God is still in charge. In fact, the origin of this beast says they, were, they came out of the sea as the winds of heaven stirred. The beasts have never truly been let off the leash. And now comes a time when God will judge them for their wickedness. I want you to notice how quick the record of the judgment is. So there is this longer description of the beasts and all the terrible things they're doing. And then their, the record of their destruction and judgment is so quick as if God simply acts and it's done. Look at verse 11. I watched then. Because the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, given over to the burning fire. Done. The end. That's it. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. So the books recording every evil action, every wicked thought, every damning decision are opened, and God judges those who rebel against him. No one can escape. No one can hide. Though God is patient, his patience has an expiration date, and then judgment comes. Now, friend, these nations are made up of men and women like you and me. Judgment comes not just to kingdoms, but to all who rebel against God's rule, who ignore God's instructions, who violate his commands. You know, as we, as we look at the evil around us, and especially as we look at evil seeming to prosper while those who are righteous and are, are suffering, like we... We need to remember that God's judgment may not come when we think it should, but it will come. That God gives evil men a fixed length of time before he acts. Verse 25 describes it as a time, times, and half a time. That's a a mysterious way of making the point that it's not short, but it's fixed. And it's not as long as it could be. In fact, Jesus says in Mark 13 that God has cut these days short for the sake of his elect. Evil may take your life, but it will not last forever because God sits on his throne and judges the beasts. Here's the second thing that happens after he sits down. The throne is given to Jesus. The throne is given to Jesus. Verse 13, I continued watching in the night visions and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Eighty-one times in the Gospels, Jesus is called the Son of Man. Son of Man is another way of saying human being. That Jesus who comes on the clouds is a sign of his deity, takes on the form of a man, perfectly blending deity and humanity in one person. After dying for sin, rising from the dead, sending his disciples and ascending to heaven, Jesus takes his rightful place at his Father's side where he receives all power and glory into his hands as given an unending kingdom. We saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream 
that the statue was crushed by a stone not made with human hands. And that stone, after crushing the kings of the world and they being like chaff that was blown away by the wind, it slowly grew into a mountain that filled the entire earth. Jesus is establishing his kingdom until it fills the whole world. Now as the Son of Man, Jesus stands as the representative of the human race. He is our representative. He lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death we deserve as judgment for our sin. And through faith in him, We join in the merits of his death. We receive the gift of his life and we are brought into his kingdom. And so here on one hand you have men who like beasts grasp for more power. They become more and more beastly as they devour others in an endless unsatisfied quest for more. They consume and they consume and they are never satisfied And then you have Jesus in human form who shows us what true humanity looks like, that we are created to give ourselves for others. That we find satisfaction not in taking and devouring and consuming, but in relationship with God, obeying his commands, and then fulfilling this God-given mandate to create and to cultivate and to show compassion as we pour out our lives for the good of others. And so the beasts receive judgment from God and Jesus receives a kingdom. And then one more thing happens. The garden is restored to glory. So Jesus, through his death and resurrection, begins this work of restoring creation to its intended end. So, so like a house that was destroyed by fire and is being slowly rebuilt brick by brick, Jesus starts to restore the garden to the glory it had in the beginning. But this time the garden isn't one small piece of land. We see it spreads from one corner of the globe to the other. We're told in verse 14 that Jesus saves a people from every tribe, language, and nation. In verse 18, these people receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Verse 27, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, to the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers, who are the rulers there? It's his people who've been given his his authority to act as his representatives. They will serve and obey him. What Adam lost By listening to a beast in the garden, Jesus restores after the beasts are judged. And Jesus, in his kindness and compassion, chooses not to rule alone. He gives authority to his people, like God did to Adam and Eve. He gives authority to his people to serve him throughout his renewed world. We are are restored to our position as royal representatives of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't gain glory by taking it from other people. We don't gain glory by destroying someone else's reputation. We don't gain glory by fashioning ourselves into an image that people will accept. We don't gain glory by making ourselves look great. The road to glory leads through suffering. Because we follow a crucified Savior. We walk the very same path Jesus walked. We live right now in the time between Jesus' ascension to the throne and his return to a fully restored world. And we see that our purpose, like Daniel's before us, is to serve faithfully 
as a representative of the king who reigns above all earthly powers. We need to be able to watch cable news and understand that's not the big picture. We need to be able to scroll through social media or not. But if we do, and realize like that's, that's not the full story. Like there, there's something bigger going on. What we see on those news, social media, is we see people devouring each other. And so in that sense, we're, if we see it for what it is, it's truthful. People devouring each other. But we must see more than that. And therefore refuse to join them. That we will not devour other people. We will not hurt them or harm them. We will not attack them. When threatened, we don't threaten in response. When attacked, we refuse to fight back. Why? Because we represent the king who reigns over it all. Now sometimes it can get really lonely representing King Jesus. Maybe we can feel like Daniel must have from time to time that we're all alone. Daniel had these good friends, but only one person was lowered into the lion's den. Maybe you're a student and you're at school and it feels really lonely because you hear a teacher teach and you, you see these classmates acting in such a way and you, you know enough to be like, I know, I know that's not what God intended. And, and I want to do what God intends and it's, it's really lonely. I feel like I'm the only one. Or maybe you're at work and you're in a culture of, of consuming and you're in a culture of devouring and you're like, it's brutal. Everyone there is after more and more and more and it's hard to be the one who's trying to act human. Truly human. As Jesus intended in this. Maybe you think no one else seems to be struggling with the pressures I face. No one else seems to be under the attacks I'm under. But you see, when, Daniel, when Daniel's eyes were lifted from these earthly beasts to the throne room of God, what he saw was a multitude too large to number gathered around God's throne. 10,000 times 10,000 is the Bible's way of saying it is uncountable. And so I just want to say to you, dear brother or sister, no matter how alone you may feel in the Babylon God has called you to, you are not alone. That there is a cloud of witnesses cheering you on. It's a jungle out there. I think as Americans, we've been lulled into a false sense of security because we have rarely faced persecution. In fact, I would tell you, I think the beast looks more like a sweet-talking serpent trying to seduce us with visions of independence and freedom and rights and comfort and ease. And maybe, maybe even in God's grace over the last decade or two, we're, we're starting to recognize the beast for what it really is. Maybe for the first time behind the sweet-talking seduction, we're seeing the bared teeth and the sharp claws and the stamping, trampling feet. And then we ask, well, what hope do we have against an angry lion? I mean, what hope do I have against a mighty bear 
What hope do I have against an ancient serpent? When David was a, just a, a young shepherd, he was sent on a mission by his father and that took him to, to the nation of Israel, the army of the nation of Israel, and they were cowering in fear and they were asking the question, what hope do we have? What do we hope do we have against this as the, their enemies were lined up on the other side of a valley? And David went before the king and there he told him a story. He said, here's a story while I was tending my father's sheep, an angry lion came. And another night, a mighty bear came, and God gave me power to destroy the lion and to defeat the bear and not lose a single sheep. And then David marched into that valley, and there we're told, in the middle of the valley, the sun was shining on a giant, and because of the way the sun was shining, that giant in his armor looked like an enormous serpent. And David marched into that valley. He descended in the valley and he walked out the other side holding the giant's head in his hands. Listen, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, born into the line of David, our good shepherd, descended into death itself and he came out the other side having crushed the serpent's head. And so this is what we need, brothers and sisters. We need to understand we're in a vicious war where all around us people are fighting and scratching and devouring each other where those people seek power and they seek power mainly for one reason. They want to, they want to use that power to get what they're hoping will satisfy them and they'll destroy others in the process. We need to see the world for what it is. But we do not need to despair. Because far above the mightiest earthly rulers sits Jesus on his throne. And his kingdom is spreading right now and it will not stop until it fills the whole earth. The lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain, is the king of the jungle. Let's not forget it. Pray with me. Father, it's really hard some days. It's really hard some weeks, some seasons. Because... We're exiles in this world where the currency of our world is greed, consumption, selfishness. And it's hard because we feel those same pulls in ourselves. In our, in our own hearts, we, we feel that same pull towards that kind of way because we want, we were created for a type of glory that comes from you and we think the way to get it is the way we see, which is to devour others. And Lord, it's really, really hard. And so we need your help. Help us to see Jesus, to see our victorious Savior ruling and reigning far above all earthly powers. Help us to trust that his grace is sufficient and that though our path may, like his, be through suffering and death, that it'll end in glory. And we'll be part of his kingdom, representatives of his, set free from sin to enjoy and serve him forever. So give us hope with these truths we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.
For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.